Well, not long ago, uh, I have to confess that I um, started having some doubts that perhaps I had gotten it all wrong. Perhaps I had misunderstood the, the person and the mission of Jesus Christ. Maybe uh, he wasn't what I had uh, learned he was. Perhaps the world had it right, that he was a, a, a good man who said good things and did honorable things, but that was the extent to who he was. And, and so I decided to go back to the very words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. Because I, I needed to know, I needed to remind myself what he said. And not just, you know, assume things based on the culture in which I was raised. And as I read the words of Jesus in the Gospels, I have found that, that rather than uh, discovering discrepancies or, or contrast to my upbringing and my understanding of who Jesus was and is, I have found reinforcement in my belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can't read, as C.S. Lewis so eloquently said, you can't read Jesus' words. You can't look at those words without being forced to choose who he is. He demands... He demands a response. As Lewis puts it, he, he was either a raving lunatic who's crazy, or he was evil, trying to persuade people of his own majesty. Or, as I believe with all my heart, he was the Son of God, the Messiah that John was speaking of. And then once you accept his deity, you have to look at those words as profound words meant for you. Words that come from the very heart of God for you. Not to be sort of lumped in with all philosophy or all theology. They, they have to be words that echo from the, word, from the heart of God. And so I suppose that's why we're doing Red Letter Jesus. This series using Matthew's Gospel as uh, the, the base, the launching pad, if you will, into... Discovering what Jesus said in the Gospels, or as they're recorded in the Gospels. And last week we took a look at the words uh, of Jesus that gave us a very clear indication that he was not some guy on a path of self-discovery. He was not some guy who was uncomfortable with how people were responding to him and, you know, unsure of who he was and realizing the power that he had, but... 
you know, what is this all about? Not at all. Jesus Christ knew exactly from a very early age who he was, who his dad was, where he was from, why he was on planet Earth. So his words reveal his self-awareness. And today we're going to take a look at the fact that Jesus' words endorse Scripture. Matthew writes that after the baptism, which we read about last week, Matthew uh, tells us that Jesus was taken into the desert. I'm going to read from Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. We know that God orchestrated this situation, this, this event. The Spirit led him out to be tested. We know that it was of God, but it, it begs the question legitimately, why? <laughs> What's going on here? Is this some sort of test where Jesus can prove that he's you know, going to survive the test, that he's going to triumph, and he's going to come out a better guy? having gone through it? Was there a lesson in this for Jesus? I personally am not in agreement with that myself. You see, I know that Jesus was fully man, and I know that he was fully God. But I don't think Jesus, and, and people will disagree with me, but I don't think Jesus was vulnerable to sin. And so, I believe this event of orchestrated by God, brought about by the Holy Spirit, I believe it was for a different audience than Jesus. First of all, I think there was a message here for Satan. And secondly, I think there's several messages here for humanity. So, so let's just take a look first at this message for Satan. I found this in, in reading um, some of the, the commentators and some of the uh, information that I could around the temptation and why it happened. And I find this like really refreshing. He's, this writer says, The temptation of Jesus focused on Satan's determined effort to keep Jesus from the cross. Interesting, isn't that? 
We have to think, oh yeah, well, Satan was trying to kill Jesus. Mm, probably nothing further from the truth. He was trying to keep him from death. <laughs> if you think about it. He didn't want him to die, whatever interpreters think. He desperately sought to keep him from the cross. For he knew Christ's death destroyed evil, death, and Satan, or himself. The proof of his desperation was his willingness to compromise with Jesus by letting him rule in morality and virtue, as long as he didn't rule in blood-bought righteousness. Interesting, eh? Because if Jesus died, it was the end of sin, death, and Satan. And so there's a message here for Satan. You see, Satan, knowing Satan, and how he thinks, figures there's a vulnerability here. This is my chance. Jesus is fully man. And who better to know how vulnerable man or humanity is to sin than Satan, the great tempter. And so he assumes that if Jesus is fully man, he's going to fall. Because he's going to offer him all the right stuff. But the temptation of Jesus Christ was a clear message to Satan that your days are numbered. <laughs> Didn't turn out quitely, quite the way Satan thought, I'm sure. But your days are numbered, Satan. As Jesus said, the kingdom has come. Not only will Christ not fall to temptation, his death will be the beginning of the end for Satan. And so I think there's a very clear message. And I, yes, I know Satan didn't give up. And Satan did try to trip Jesus up. Assuming that he had leverage because of Christ's humanity. But he learned a very clear message that he wasn't going to win. I think there's a few messages here too for humanity. I'd like us to read Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, Two shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's the message in that passage for us as it relates to the temptation of Jesus Christ in the desert? I need to know that Jesus Christ is sufficient for me. 
I need to know that when the scripture teach me that Jesus redeems me, that he is the atoning sacrifice, that he is the one who can clear my conscience with God, I need to know that he is sufficient, that he's got the goods to do that. That instance, that temptation of Christ clearly tells me he had to endure hardship. There's no question about that. I always think it's so funny. It says, after 40 days and nights in the desert, three words, he was hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think? He was hungry. But what it tells me is he was fully human, but he did not sin. He was sinless. And because he was fully flesh and blood, and because he was free of sin, he becomes the perfect substitute for me. He becomes the perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's one of the messages. The other message we'll take from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There is nobody who can know exactly what you're going through. And when somebody comes alongside, you're having a hard time, you're having a struggle, somebody comes along and puts their arm around you and says, I know exactly how you're feeling. Don't you hate that? I feel like you're more swat. You don't know what I'm feeling. Nobody can possibly do that. However, who are the greatest healers? There are those who have been healed of similar issues, right? There are people who come alongside, and that's why you have these incredible people. Well, even our John and John and Lori, remember, from they come every year yeah. from Florida. John has post-traumatic stress disorder. Guess what he's doing? He's ministering and serving people that have post-traumatic stress disorder. He's not going to start off his presentation by saying, I know exactly what you guys are going through. What he's going to say is, I've been in the place that you have been. I know something of what you're going through. And I think I have something to share. That's what I take from this passage. Jesus Christ can empathize with us. He is not some stone-cold God who's away and doesn't understand what we're going through and the temptations and how difficult it is. But he didn't sin, and he was the perfect lamb who took away the sins of the world. So I believe that the, the, the incident in the desert, the 40 days and 40 nights, was not intended for Christ at all, but for Satan, to send him a very clear message, your time is up. And for us, that he is the perfect acceptable sacrifice. 
and that he can identify with us in our struggle. And that means a lot to us. But this isn't the main reason why I've chosen to talk about what we're talking about today. What was Jesus' means of messaging to Satan? What was his strategy? Well, his strategy clearly was quoting Scripture. He pulled out a double-edged sword. <laughs> Come and get it. Scripture was used by Jesus Christ all the time. And that should mean something to us, right? Those of us who doubt Scripture. Those of us who are like, ah, you know, look at all the origins. You know, dig deep. And you start to question things. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, he quoted Scripture all the time. All the time. After 40 days with no food, Jesus is hungry, and he tells Satan that sustenance is not limited to food. Refreshment, satisfaction, contentment also comes from accepting the truth of the Word of God. Do you remember the woman at the well? This is kind of a part that sort of gets missed over a little bit or brushed over a little bit. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, coming to get water <laughs> midday. Jesus comes to the well. His disciples are with him. It's lunchtime. They're all starving. He says, go to town, get some food, and come back. Then we have the case where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He's saying all this amazing stuff to her. And when they get back, they're like, oh, we got the food. It's time to eat. And Jesus says what? I have food you know nothing about. Was he packing a lunch somewhere? <laughs> no, he wasn't. Right? The word of God was his sustenance. Yeah, he was fully human. I'm sure he enjoyed the bagels. But he really knew that there was a greater nourishment beyond what they were bringing to him. You see, Jesus knew that there is a greater need than a physical need. Let me say that again. Jesus knows, and we know, really, that there is a greater need than a physical need. And that there is greater food than physical food. Jesus was being confronted by religious leaders one day. Um, it was kind of a funny story. <laughs> they were like, well, who am I married to when I get to heaven? Right? And then they, they went back to the law and they said, you know, if a, a man is married and he dies and they don't have any kids, the wife, back in the day, goes to 
goes to the brother, the next brother in line. And then they said, it was like a riddle. What if that guy dies? And then what if the next guy dies? And they said it seven times. And the guy had seven brothers. So who's the woman married to when he gets to heaven? When she gets to heaven. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for that woman who died. <laughs> so, who's, like really, who's she married to? And Jesus said this. You are in error because you do not know scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> you do not know scriptures. So it begs the question, what is he talking about when Jesus is talking about scriptures? Because we think of Jesus in scripture. What's he talking about? Well, he clearly is talking about the Hebrew scriptures, which have three parts. And I'm just going to do this really quickly just so that we make sure that we... I want to be on record, for the record. He quoted from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses. And you can see an example up there. Next one. Next one. There we go. So, you know, he quoted... That's Jesus on the top, and then that's where he was quoting from in the Torah. He quoted from the prophets which was the next one. And he quoted from the writings, or the additional writings, that are all form what we call the Old Testament. And so Jesus regularly quoted Scripture. He had no qualms about it. He was the Son of God, and he quoted it with authority, with the authority that it deserved. He didn't look at it as sort of like, well, Here's an idea, you know. Take it for what it's worth, or with a grain of salt. But you might want to cross-reference it with some of the philosophers of the age. No. He quoted Scripture. Think about that. He quoted Scripture. So if Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, if Jesus looks to the Old Testament as food, shouldn't we? Should we not say, I can go to the Word of God, to the Old Testament, and find the very words of God there? I think we should. Paul wrote to Timothy, moving on from there, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may thoroughly be equipped for every good work. So that begs the question, here's Paul, post-Jesus, writing to Timothy about Scripture being God-breathed. What Scripture is he referring to? See, our Scripture is not limited to the Old Testament, but includes the Gospels and the writings of Paul and a few of the other disciples or followers of Jesus. Are we, and please listen to this, are we to regard the New Testament as Jesus Christ regarded the Old Testament? As food, as coming from the heart of God, as holy, as sacred. Are we to regard it that way? Well, let's just think about the Gospels for a second. This is what Jesus said in John 3. 
The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For, and this is it, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. What are the Gospels other than the lifetime's teaching of Jesus Christ? And therefore, they are the words of God. Spoken from the heart of God, nutrition for our souls. So we've talked about the Old Testament. We've talked about the Gospels. What about Paul? I and mean, quite frankly, you know, this guy gets such a bad rap. He gets put down so much. And people really, I mean, if you're going to take any part of the Bible lightly, people take Paul's writings lightly. Mostly because they're not politically correct for us. And we don't like to hear what he has to say sometimes. But even if you dismiss the fact that Paul's writings are consistent with Old Testament and the Gospels, you are forced to accept that the early church, even Jesus' disciples, accepted Paul's writings as Scripture. Did you know that? 2 Peter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and, peace, and at peace with you. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul, this is Peter writing, you know, one of the top three, close, close friend of Jesus. Even our brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in, in them of these matters. <laughs> and this is, this is ironic. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. But look at this, which ignorant and unstable people distort. That's still happening today. As they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter here is equating Paul's writings with scripture. So we can confidently trust that the Bible that we ascribe to is God-breathed. Now, in closing, I just want to return to this idea that Scripture is not the same as any other writings. Once again, remember, Jesus equated it to food, that it was life-giving. John 6, 63 says, Jesus' words, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. In other words, no other words have the power to eternally alter the very nature of a person. I am not foolish or simple-minded enough to think that there aren't things that you have read that have changed your life that were not Scripture. But they have not changed your life to the degree that the Word of God has changed your life. Is that true? Absolutely, right? You may have read a book on nutrition and it changed how you eat. And it changed your life. It didn't change your eternity, though. The Word of God is dynamic and has a force to it 
that exceeds any other writings. We read in Hebrews 4, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit's joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is a powerful thing. John understood this intimately. And this is why, and this is John, Jesus' good friend, who wrote John and Revelation. John understood this intimately. And this is why he starts off his accounting of Jesus with these amazing words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He didn't say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was good. He chose the word, word. Right? And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. You see, the earliest readers of these words would have been looking at the word logos. And logos has just an additional meaning that we don't really get in English because we think of words as providing meaning. But logos is words provide meaning and the power to change things. So, that's why David would write, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of heaven. Jesus is Logos. He is the Word. The Word that changes things. And we find that the Word is all of Scripture. This is why Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words give life and are of such substance that they will never fade. He is the personification of the message. He is the living word. And so it behooves us, doesn't it, to study the red letters in the Bible. Because they are not just words that we take meaning from. They are words that get into us and actually have the power to transform us and change us. I think it's ironic that people still study philosophy. Our son Owen studied philosophy, right? And he'll tell you, he got frustrated with it because he said, there isn't any room for new. There isn't any room for revelation or new truth. You go to study, you go to study what has been thought before, in other words. And yet some people are still writing books thinking that they are bringing something that's going to change the world. sit in libraries and get dust. The only word 
that has had the power to change lives, that people have died for, is the Word of God, Scripture. Jesus' very life, His words reference Scripture, and it behooves us to, to, to not dismiss Scripture or always be looking for alternate interpretations or, or stacking it up with other great philosophers or great religions. Jesus is the Word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the Gospels. I thank you for the faithfulness of the folks who listen to your spirit as they recorded it. I thank you, Lord, for the consistency of it, the message of it. But most of all, Lord, we thank you that it reveals something that is supernatural, beyond the ordinary. And that is words that have the power to change. And so, Lord, let us not take lightly scripture, but let us invest in it. Let us go deep into it. Let us find what you want. And as we study your words, these red letters in the New Testament, in the Gospels, may we be open to allow that word to change us. Not just temporarily or even in this life, but to to change us eternally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.